Tonight, I want to preach one of my favorite sermons. It's entitled, Why I Am Happy to Be a Christian. And by design, the majority of this lesson is in the introduction, the introduction of the material. And after we will have studied the introductory material, then we will enter into the body of the study. I would like for us tonight, first of all, to read in our hearing 1 Corinthians chapter 1, wherein Paul is discussing the divisive state existing in Corinth. They were so divided that they were saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and some were saying, I am of Christ. Now, that term, I am of, means I belong to. In fact, Moffat's translation renders that passage thusly. Thus they were saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Cephas, I belong to Christ. Now, I want us to remember that because we'll come back to it momentarily. The name Christian is composed of the name Christ and the suffix I-A-N. Now, the I-A-N of that word, somebody said, means I ain't nothing without Christ. Now, that's a true statement, but that's not the meaning of the suffix. The suffix means belonging to. In fact, if you were to go to fairs, Greek lexicon, and look up the word Christian, you'd find that to be the definition. So if the suffix I-A-N means belonging to, and is the ending thus of Christ, then what's the definition of uh, the name Christian? Very obviously. A Christian is one who belongs to Christ. Now, did you recall a moment ago how these Corinthians were saying, we belong to Paul, we belong to Apollos, and we belong to Cephas, and we belong to Christ. Now, how did Paul answer that particular divisive state? He asked two questions. And among them, he says, Was Paul crucified for you? And number two, were you baptized in the name of Paul? What is he saying? He is simply saying, you cannot say, I am of Paul, that is, I belong to Paul, unless, number one, what? Unless Paul was crucified for you. And then, number two, you cannot say, I am of Paul, that is, I belong to Paul, unless what? Unless you were baptized in my name. Now, what was true of Paul was also true of Apollos and of Cephas. And what was true of Paul, Apollos, and Cephas was also true of Christ. Therefore, they could not say, I am of Christ, that is, I belong to Christ. But that's the definition of being a Christian. Unless, one, Christ had been crucified for them, and two, unless they had been baptized in his name. Now, what was true of the Corinthians is also true of 20th century man. We cannot say that we are of Christ, that is, that we belong to Christ, that is, we are Christians, unless, what? One, he was crucified for us, and two, we have been baptized in his name. Now, we can check off number one, but question number two, 
Have we ever been baptized in his name? Friends, I have talked to people about their soul, as you have, many times. And I have had some to say something like this. They would say, you know, Brother Winkler, I really don't know how long I've been a Christian. I really don't know. I just know that I became a Christian back at the old home church when I was just a lad of a boy or when I was a young girl. You can tell by the grain that I've been here quite a while. But I really don't know how long that, that, that really is. But did you know, during all of these years in which I have been a Christian, did you know that I have been a little neglectful? Yes. Did you know that during all of those years in which I have been a Christian, that I never have been baptized? Friends, you can't be a Christian without the Lord being crucified for you and without you being baptized in his name. Now look this way and listen carefully. If that's not the Bible, you forget it. But if that's the truth, it's going to read like that on the day of judgment. Again, I say, you can check off this one. But I want to very sincerely ask you tonight, have you ever been baptized in his name? Now, to be baptized in his name means to be baptized as he authorizes. For example, you turn to Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, and read about the healing of the paralytic at uh, the beautiful gate. And Peter says, if we be examined by or in what name this man has been made whole. That is, by what authority. In like manner, when we're baptized in his name, we're baptized as he authorizes. Well, how does our Lord authorize? Number one, sometimes the authorization is in the very command. And that's the way it is here. You see, the word baptized is not really an English word. It's what we call a transliterated word. That is, it's a word from another language, in this case, as you know, the Greek language, and it's simply been brought over into the English language and given a spelling and a pronunciation. And the word simply means to dip, plunge, or immerse. And therefore, when our Lord says be baptized, it authorizes what? It authorizes dipping, plunging, or immersion. Therefore, if I have been sprinkled or I have had water poured in me, I have never been baptized. Why? Because sprinkling and pouring, friends, is not baptism, never has been. In fact, the Greek words for sprinkling and pouring are altogether different words from the word baptizo or the word transliterated baptized. Secondly, by being baptized in his name, I must have been a correct candidate. You see, everybody's not a correct candidate. Do you recall when the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And what do the preachers say? If. In other words, there are some conditions. There are some requisites before a man can be baptized correctly. So he said, If thou believest, thou mayest. So then I must have been a believer. Number two, Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized. What good would it do to baptize a man who had not made up his mind, I'm going to quit doing wrong and do right? That had in mind, as soon as I'm baptized, I'm going to curse as much as I ever have. 
of what value would that be? In the nature of the case, repentance must pre precede his baptism. But apparently, no one has the right to be baptized who is not a believer, and no one has the one who is not a believer. Therefore, to indicate that I am a scriptural subject for baptism, I make a confession. Before I am baptized, and that confession is, I believe that Jesus Christ is uh, the Son of God. Brother Rue Porter, who lived in the Osho, Missouri, held gospel meetings in excess of 50 years. And it was my privilege to preach that for six years and came to know Brother Porter extremely well. Told the story so beautifully of uh, holding a meeting and someone responded to the invitation. And uh, he wanted to know for what reason that they had responded. And as you wonderful folks understand, so wonderfully so, and some right here in this audience, and you to be commended so highly, these were not able to speak. And so when Brother Porter simply said, for what purpose have you responded? One of them went to the blackboard and wrote their own. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the other member of that twin set then walked to the blackboard and took a piece of chalk and put ditto marks right under the same statement. They had done what? Indicated the fact that I'm a candidate for baptism. I am a believer. You see, that's baptism in the name of. That's the kind of candidate he authorizes. A believing, penitent, confessing one is he who is to be baptized. But thirdly, baptism in the name of our Lord is also administered for the purpose for which our Lord said to be baptized. Well, what about that? In the book of Acts 2 and 38, our Lord said, Repent and be baptized. Now watch it. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins. Now, if I had a blackboard on the pulpit tonight, I would simply write down on this particular equation. Friends, any time the word for, as it appears in this text, also translated unto. Any time that little word unto translated, if you were to open up a Greek text and see the English above it, you could read it. You wouldn't have to even have never seen a, a Greek letter before. And you can read it. There are some Greek words like that. And you see that the word unto translates a word spelled E-I-S, ace. Anytime that word unto or ace stands between, and we'll let this chair represent, anytime that word stands between a command and a blessing, you must always obey the command before you receive the blessing. Always. Now the development. Romans 10 says, For with the heart man believeth, command, unto, that's the word, righteousness, the blessing. Point 2. Acts 11, 18, When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then as God also to the, to the Gentiles granted repentance, that's the command, Unto, that's the word, life, and that's the blessing. Again, Romans 10, 8 through 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession, that's the command, is made unto, that's the word, salvation, and that's the blessing. Acts 2, 38 says, Repent and be baptized, that's the command. Unto, that's the word, remission of sins. Question. Can a man be righteous? Before he believes, no. Can a man have life 
before he repents? Indeed not. Can a man have salvation before he confesses? No. Then how can a man have remission before he's baptized? Just as I must believe in order to become righteous, as I must repent in order to have life, and I must confess in order to be saved, I must be baptized in order to have remission of sins. Now that's the purpose. That's the purpose of this sacred act. That's the kind of baptism that our Lord authorizes. Now, remember, I cannot be a Christian unless my Lord was crucified for me, one, and two, unless I have been baptized in his name, that is, as he authorizes. Now, after a while, we're going to come back to this. But right now, we'll just simply set them aside. And then I would like to somewhat change the emphasis for the moment by way of development. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, and in verses 8 through 10, you will find a text that every one of this good audience tonight can quote by memory. Therein the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. Now that text, when analyzed, presents the following. Number one, it says that there are two sides to salvation. First, there is the divine side of salvation. Add to that, there is the human side of salvation. In the next place, naturally, on the divine side, there is God. And again, naturally, over here on the human side, uh, there is man. And then we will observe that this text says that there are two principles of operation. Over here on the divine side, God's side of salvation, there is the principle of grace, or by grace are you saved. Over here on the human side, man's side of salvation, there is a principle of operation, and that's faith. But now over here on the divine side, God's side, grace became operative. It was not dead, inanimate, but it was operative. In fact, everything necessary on the divine side of salvation, on the side of grace, came about because just that, grace became operative. Now the development. In John 1.17 we read, The law came by Moses, but grace, that's it, and truth came out by Jesus Christ. So when our Lord left the portals of glory and came to this earth, lived among men as a man, and ultimately died on Calvary, what was that? That was a demonstration of God's grace. Add to that secondly. In the book of Hebrews 10, 28 through 30, we read, Out of how much, much soul punishment, suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden on the foot the Son of Man, hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Why would the Holy Spirit be called the Spirit of grace? Because everything he did to effect my salvation was what? Rooted in and was a demonstration of the grace of God. Now, what was his work primarily? Friends, the work of the Holy Spirit in the scheme of redemption was primarily twofold. His first work was revelatory, and his second work was confirmatory. Now, that may not sound ever so clear right now, but what do we mean by that? Again, on the blackboard tonight, 
we have R plus I equals B. Now, in reversal order, that simply means the Bible. It's the result of inspiration and revelation. Now, what is revelation? Revelation has to do with the impartation of information that could not have been known otherwise than supernatural. That's revelation. For example, in Genesis 1 and 1, Moses penned, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, how did Moses know that? He wasn't back there. How did he know it? There wasn't but one way, and that's by revelation. All right. But now, in this equation, we have another letter, and that's our inspiration. Well, what is inspiration? Inspiration has to do with the accurate reception of the revelation and its accurate transmission. Now, have you ever told somebody something and they didn't get it straight? Everybody's had that experience. Well, inspiration saw that when God revealed his truth of the man, then inspiration took over and saw that these apostles and prophets accurately received. Now, have you ever told somebody something and they assured you they had it right, but when they went out and told it, they got it all crosswise? We've all had that experience. Well, inspiration not only saw that the revelation was accurately received, but when it was transmitted, either by word or in writing, that it was accurately so done. So that when the apostles and New Testament prophets, like Luke, when they received the revelation, then it was accurately received. Then the Holy Spirit reached into the background of the spokesman or pigment and picked the exact word from their background. That's verbal inspiration. And the only kind the Bible knows anything about. First Corinthians 2. And selected that exact word that would accurately communicate that revelation. So that when men heard them speak or wrote what they read, they were reading what? An accurate revelation of the mind of God. And like manner so it is then tonight, that whenever I open my Bible to read the sacred content therein, my friends, I am reading the revelation of the omniscient mind of Almighty God that was accurately received and accurately transmitted by these New Testament apostles and prophets. That's marvelous to know that I can hold in my hand a revelation of, yes, I say again, the very mind of the God that made the world, the omniscient mind of the omnipotent Almighty God, and to think that I have his revelation in my hand. No wonder we read in the book of Nehemiah that when Ezra opened the book to read, and incidentally, if you'll read the context of the marginal references, you'll see that it started at the break of day and lasted until noon, six hours. And when he opened that book to read, the entire audience arose and stood. And here he was, the text says, on a pulpit of wood. And they stood from the rising of the sun until noonday while he read the book of the law of God. And if a preacher reads today ten minutes 
before he's texted someone says, Man, I didn't think he'd ever stop reading. Brethren, where is our heart? That's almost sacrilegious to say, much less to commend. To think that I have this. Campbell said every time he opened the Bible to read, he always so did, as if it had just fallen from the hand of Almighty God. And he wasn't far from wrong. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalms 119, My heart standeth in awe of thy word. Now, it was the Holy Spirit that was doing that revealing and that inspiring. Ephesians chapter 3. That's why he's called the Spirit of Grace. Because, you see, what he was doing in the scheme of redemption was a demonstration of the grace of God, rooted in the grace of God. And then he enabled these New Testament apostles and prophets and others to do what? Perform miracles to confirm that word. That's the confirmatory work. And so his work then of the scheme of redemption was thusly. And then Acts 20 and 32 says, I commend you to God, here it is, and to the word of his grace. So the Bible is a demonstration of God's grace. Now question. Can you think of anything over here on the divine side of salvation that is necessary other than the cross of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the resulting word? Can you think of anything? Well, nothing at all. Now, in like manner, over here on the human side, man's side, there is a principle of operation and it's faith. And just as grace became operative, faith must become operative as well. That's why Romans 16, 26 speaks of the obedience of faith. That's why Galatians 5 and 6 says the faith that avails is the faith that works by love. And now tonight, though we do not have the time to develop that as lengthily as I would so like, may I just introduce one passage. It's Acts 8 and 12, where the text reads, when they believe, now watch that phrase out. When they believe Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Now that text starts off by saying, when they believed, ends up by saying they were baptized. And in between these two statements, you have the two-point outline of Philip's sermon, the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. Now, if you will omit the outline, the flow of the text is maintained, and it simply reads, When they believed, they were baptized. Why does the text read like that? Because there's no such thing as a man biblically believing who does not what? Submit to the sacred act of being baptized. You see, our faith must become operative in leading us to be immersed. Now, do you remember a moment ago where we set these two things, illustrative pieces of material, aside. And do you recall that we noted that for a man to say, I'm a Christian, number one, Christ had to be crucified for him, and number two, he had to be baptized. And do you recall that over here on the divine side of salvation, God's side of salvation, there was grace, and that grace became operative in Jesus dying on the cross. 
And over here on the human side of salvation, man's side of salvation, that the principle of operation was faith, and faith became operative in one being baptized. So then, who is a Christian? A Christian is a person who has been saved by grace because Jesus was crucified through faith because he has been baptized. Now that's how beautifully clear the Bible is. That's who a Christian is. And friends, when we became a Christian, we brought joy to heaven. Luke 15 and verse 10 says, There is more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repented, more than over ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance. You know, there are two things men can do on earth that influence heaven. You know what they are? Obey the gospel and pray. That influences heaven. I often think at the close of a Lord's Day how much joy there must be in heaven of all the precious souls who responded to the invitation that day. And the Bible says there's joy in heaven over one soul that repents. So we bring joy to heaven when we obey the gospel. But then, correspondingly, heaven sends joy to indwell our hearts. That's why when the eunuch was baptized, Acts 8, 26 through 40, that text says what? He went on his way rejoicing. When the jailer was baptized, Acts 16, 30 through 35, he brought them into his house and set meat before them, and what? Rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Romans 14, 17 declares, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. And so then we have joy that indwells our heart. Again, you've heard about the little girl who was stroking the face of the mule. And as she so did, her mother overheard her say, Oh, he'd make such a nice Christian. And it bothered her mother that she'd say something like that. And so she said, she said, Honey, said, said, what do you mean? He would make such a nice Christian. And she said, He's got such a long face. You see, that little girl somehow or another had gotten a misconcept of Christianity. Friends, a child of God, a Christian, ought to have a song in his heart. He ought to have a smile on his countenance. He ought to have a spring, as it were, to his walk. He ought to be the happiest person. Indeed, we can even smile through our tears. Yes, we're not exempt from trial, but we can smile through our tears. Let me tell you, if we always go around dressed in the proverbial black, frowning, incapable, it seems, of smiling, as if we'd lost our last best friend, nobody's going to walk up by our side, put their arm in ours, and say, whatever you got, I want. No, indeed not. But a child of God ought to be an open commentary upon what it means to be right with God. And that is, he ought to have the happiest heart that beats in the human breast. And so tonight, having dealt so primarily with some basics by way of introductory material, extremely brief, I want out of the multiplied numbers of things that flood the mind, I only want to give three, and at the most, 
four basic reasons why I am happy to be a Christian. I'm happy to be a Christian first because it makes life worth living. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and what? They might have it more abundantly. John chapter 10, verse 10. Remember what he had, um, what he had Timothy to know in 1 Timothy chapter 4 when he said that bodily exercise profit is little, but godliness is profitable in all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Suppose I were to ask you tonight to take a, a card off of the back of the pew in front of you, and I were to say, friends, I am going to mention a chapter in the Bible tonight. And the moment that I mention that chapter, would you write the first thing that enters your mind? Now, what will you have written? Here's the chapter. Psalms 23. Now, what did you write? Everybody wrote the same thing. And that's commendable, incidentally. We either wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, or... Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow, we, that, we either wrote one of those two statements. Friends, why did not any of us write the last statement in the psalm? It looks to me like we would remember that as quickly as we would the first. You know what the last statement is? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me when? All the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, the child of God has the better part of both worlds. He has the abundant life. I would have you to obey the gospel, friends, in this service, because you may die tonight. But I would also have you to obey the gospel in this service because you may live tomorrow. And Christianity makes life worth living. I grew up in a great church, the old Sixth Street Church in Port Arthur, Texas. Our local preacher when I was a boy was O.C. Lambert. We'd have Foy Wallace to come and hold a meeting in one part of the year, and G.A. Dunn, Gus Dunn to come and hold one at the other part of the year. And then John D. Cox would come, and H.M. Phillips would come, and over where my father-in-law was an elder, they'd have C.M. Pullius and Gus Nichols. And I, w I was reared hearing these great men of God preach. Great men of God preach. And I remember that Basil Doran sometimes would come and lead the singing when we have these meetings, and I can still hear G.A. Dunn. Many of you remember Brother Dunn. Brother Dunn was what I call the Chesterfield gentleman. He was straight as an arrow, never, but very uh, occasionally, wore anything but a coal black suit, coal black tie. And that diamond stick pen, and I'm telling you, it was dignity. And I still believe that we try to teach our preacher boys at Faulkner. When they get in this pulpit, friends, the word is dignity. This is serious business up here. It's dignity. And I can still see as he would thus enter. And sometimes he turned to Brother Doran and he would say, Brother Doran. Let's sing. And he had a favorite song. And it's a wonderful song. And you know what his song was? 
in the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. And friends, that's so true. But I am so happy that in addition to that, that we can also sing in the sweet now and now. That's why I'm happy to be a Christian. It makes life worth living. Secondly, I'm happy to be a Christian because it means I can pray, and that with assurance. The Bible says, If ye abide in me, and my word abides in you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done. John 15, 6. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are what? Open unto their prayers. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. Asking ye shall receive, seeking ye shall find, knocking it shall be opened, says Matthew 7, 7 through 11. And so what? The Bible says that God is going to hear us whenever we pray. Indeed, all of us have been burdened by our sins. All of us have been burdened with the trials and the tribulations of life. And numbers of us in this audience tonight have stood by or either sat by the bedside of a dying mother and a dying father. And some of us have had to stand by the beds of our own children. And indeed, uh, with life, it seems, uh, being so very fragile. Our wives have gone down into the valley of the shadow of death. And there they lingered in the twilight of two worlds to bring our own children into the world. And I'll tell you, when these burdens assail us and these tribulations lay us low, when sins come into our lives, and whenever death invades indeed our homes and takes from our bosoms the nearest and dearest of on earth to us, where, oh, where would we be if we could not pray? But did you know all men can't pray? Solomon said, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the word of the Lord, what? Even his prayer shall be an abomination. I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not altogether otherwise than certain that what that text is saying, it would be better for some people not to pray. It's an abomination for some people to pray. Well, I don't want to offer an abomination to God. I don't want to add sin to sin. Better for a man to live in rebellion against God and then to think if he gets on his knees in his closets and prays that it gets worse. It's an abomination. That's, I can't imagine that. But that's what God says about a man who turned away. So this idea of a man mocking at God and having no time for the church of the Lord who never reads his Bible and his loved ones try to plead with him to go to church, regularly and obey the gospel, and all he gives them is the back of his hand, and then when tribulations assail and adversities wait, oh, then he won't pray. Why don't he face it like a man? He lived in rebellion against God like a man. Why don't he do it? Out of a man then getting on his knees and saying, God, here. Someone said, Brother Winker, that's hard. Friends. I don't want to come across hard just for the sake of being hard. I just want you to see how tragic it is for a man to live in rebellion against God. That's all I want you to do. 
It could be that it would be better for some men not even to pray. But oh, to be a Christian. That's why I'm happy to be a Christian. It means I can pray, and that with confidence. A man once came to the late Gus Nichols and said to him, said, Brother Nichols, I don't think God hears me anymore when I pray, and in his own inimitable way. Brother Nichols said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. He said, I want you to take a night when the stars are not shining and the moon is not out, and it's so dark you can cut it with a knife. I mean it's dark. And he said, at midnight, I want you to go out into the woods where nobody can see you and nobody can hear you. And I want you to double up your fist. And Brother Nichols said, I want you then to shake it in the face of God and say, I dare you to strike me dead. Oh, man, the man couldn't understand what he was hearing. Couldn't believe that he was hearing that from a gospel preacher. And Brother Nichols says, won't you do it? And the man said, why, no, a thousand times no. And then Brother Nichols asked, well, why? He said, I'm afraid God might do it. He said, there you are. You think that God hears you when you blaspheme, but you doubt that God hears you when you pray. That's powerful. That's powerful, brethren. I know members of the church today that think that God hears them when they curse on the job, but doubts that God hears them when they pray in their closets. Where's our faith? Do you believe in prayer? Do you want to build a great church? Can't do it without that. To believe in prayer. That's one of the most wonderful blessings that God gives us as Christians. But tonight, I want to close by just mentioning the third. We will not give for just one more reason why I am happy to be a Christian. I'm happy to be a Christian, friends, because it means that I can face death with confidence. The Bible says, Thou shalt come to thy grave in a full age, like as a shock of corn cometh in its season. Job 5, 26. There is a time to be born and a time to die, says Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 2. As an animal die, reads 1 Corinthians 15 and 22. So die I will. When I was living in Neosho, Missouri, I'd been out to preach a funeral, came back by the business establishment of one of our members who did not know what it was to be faithful. He'd come one Sunday and miss four and attend two and miss six. And that's about, that was his attendance patterns. And so I went by to see him and I uh, said to him, Cecil, I said, do you know where I've been? He said, don't have any idea. Wendell said, where have you been? I said, I've been out and gave the location of the rural cemetery. I said, we just buried Mr. So-and-so. I, he said, I didn't know he had died. I said, yes, we just buried. And I turned to him and I said, Cecil, have you ever taken to heart that one of these days we're going to be taking you out of the city and burying you in a grave six feet deep and three feet wide? And he changed the topic. In two Lord's days, he responded to the invitation and was restored. I've gone back for numbers of meetings. In one of those meetings, he walked out the door one night and he said, Brother Winkler, he said, do you remember when you lived here with us and you came by to see me when I was not faithful? I said, yes, sir. He said, do you recall what you told me? I said, sure. He said, as strange as it may sound to you, until you said that to me, it never dawned on me that I was going to die. 
But he said, I'll tell you something. When I got a hold of that, I got straight in a hurry. It'll happen every time. You know what our problem is? We don't think much about death and dying. We're tied up in this old, affluent, tinsel world, not knowing that we're here only for a preparatory time and that for the other world, you see. But thank God if we're children of His. Thank God if we're Christians.